Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense, Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey, hello, and how are you? And welcome to this latest edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we discuss some of the best moments, best names, and best memories in sports history. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and I hope that you're having a great day, great evening, or great night, wherever and whenever you're listening. And we're back again with another show highlighting the best in sports history, and I appreciate you taking time out to give us a listen. And as a reminder, please subscribe to this podcast if you like what you hear here and check out our Twitter page at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. On today's episode of the program, we will revisit the date of January the 2nd, 1982. On that afternoon and into that night was one of the greatest games in NFL postseason history as the San Diego Chargers defeated the Miami Dolphins 41 to 38 in the game known as the Epic in Miami. That game was also the genesis of my fandom of the Chargers that even extends to this day. That is this week's main event. Also on the show, we will be sending a historically speaking sports shout out to the late John Madden, who passed away recently and whose influence in football spans three generations of football fans and his marks on those generations have been in three different ways. And also we will have our top five historic events that took place between the dates of January the 2nd and January the 8th. So pump up the volume and you're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a proud member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is all about the lesser known pro football players. Yes, there are stories about the ones we know, like Brad Tarkenton and Harold Red Grange. But have you ever heard of Ernie Nevers? How about Dave Osborne or even Grady Alderman? These men created their own path to the NFL. How did they do it? Listen to the Pigskin Tales podcast. Now streaming on your favorite music platform. Go to pigskintails.com. Hello, welcome back to the program. I'm Dana Augusta, your host, and you're locked into the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we relive the best that the history of sports could offer. On this episode's main event, we will discuss the game known as the Epic in Miami, which took place 40 years ago in the Orange Bowl between the Miami Dolphins and the San Diego Chargers in the AFC Divisional Playoffs. This was also the beginning of my fandom of the San Diego Chargers. Now, 
in January of 1982, I was eight years old and I would turn nine in March and was just learning the game. But I was fascinated with sports in a way that was almost insatiable on this afternoon, which I remember was on a Saturday. It was the late game on TV. Uh, earlier that day, the Cowboys had beaten the Buccaneers 38 to nothing at Texas Stadium. So that wasn't much of a game. Yet this game would be billed as a matchup between the irresistible force and an immovable object. The Chargers air Coriel defense led by future Hall of Fame quarterback Dan Fouts and the Dolphins tenacious defense led by the Killer Bees, a defense where most of the starters name began with the letter B. Now, the Chargers were slight favorites in the game and were looking to return to the AFC championship game for the second year in a row. The season before, the Chargers had lost to the Raiders 34-27 in San Diego, and the Raiders ended up moving on and beating the Eagles in Super Bowl 15. Meanwhile, in my neighborhood where I grew up in South Louisiana, I was just coming inside from playing football with my buddies and about to sit and watch the game with my dad and my grandfather, not knowing that in about four and a half hours or so, I would have witnessed the greatest football game I had ever seen. And I would fall in love with the game and a team that was based 2,000 miles, 2000 miles away from where I lived. Now, as the game began, the Chargers were on the attack. And the key play in the initial drive, Fouts completed a long pass to receiver Wes Chandler, which resulted in a rough Bonerska field goal. The Dolphins would falter on their first position and ended up punting the ball away. Chandler was one of the returners on the punt, along with rookie James Brooks. Chandler would field the ball and explode at 58 yards for the Chargers' first touchdown of the game, outrunning the uh, Dolphin defenders. The Chargers' good fortune continued as Miami would turn the ball over on the ensuing kickoff, putting San Diego within striking distance again. Several plays later, running back Chuck Muncie would score for one yard out, giving the Chargers a 17-0 lead, still midway in the first quarter. At this point, my grandfather, who was watching the game along with my dad and I, he might have been feeling a little bit miffed, and the reason why was because he wasn't a Dolphin fan, but he was a diehard Saints fan, and the two players that had scored touchdowns for the Chargers in this game at this point were two former Saints players, Chandler and Muncie. Now, I was watching the game, and I was really impressed with the Chargers, and, that would be, and I would be much more impressed on the Dolphins' next possession when quarterback David Woodley would throw an interception and defensive back Glenn Edwards returned it deep into Dolphin territory. Uh, a couple plays later, Fouts found James Brooks on a swing route to give the Chargers a seemingly insurmountable 24-0 lead with time still remaining in the, in the first quarter. We were beginning to think that this game was going to be just like all the other ones, a blowout. But Miami coach Don Shula turned the tables and replaced Woodley with veteran quarterback Don Strzok at the beginning of the second quarter. Now what happened? Things changed dramatically all in the Dolphins' favor. Strzok would lead the Dolphins down the field and eventually a Uwe von Schaumann field goal put the Dolphins on the board and the Dolphins would find the end zone on their second drive thanks to a one-yard touchdown pass to tight end Joe Rose. All of a sudden, before you know it, the game, was, the game score was 24 to, 24 to 10, with about six seconds remaining in the game, in the half. Shula called a 
playground play called circle curled lateral, which meant Strzok would throw a pass towards the sideline to receiver Duriel Harris, and Harris would lateral the ball back to running back Tony Nathan before being tackled. It never worked in practice. They tried it several times in the season, and it never worked during the game. But when it was needed to be pulled off, it was. The play worked to perfection as the Dolphins went into the into halftime, still trailing 24-17, but the tide of the game had definitely turned. The Dolphins' momentum to ca- uh, continued to carry them towards the end zone. After receiving the second-half kickoff, Strzok led the Dolphins back down the field again and would cap the drive by finding Joe Rhodes in the end zone for the second time, tying the score at 24. Now with the Orange Bowl tied now, with the score tied, the famous Orange Bowl crowd noise began to take effect. Calling the game for NBC that afternoon with Don Quiggy and John Brody, which called the Orange Bowl game the night before. And I can remember him saying, the Orange Bowl here in Miami has gone from stunned silence to absolute mayhem. The game like, a game like this was totally new to me, and I was becoming more and more interested in this divisional game, and I was loving every minute of it. The Chargers needed to respond, and they did. On the very next series, Fouts got things going as he usually did through the air. San Diego would retake the lead as Fouts found his favorite target, Kellen Winslow, for a 25-yard touchdown reception. With the extra point, the Chargers would regain the lead 31-24. The Dolphins would strike back quickly, though, once again on the arm of Don Strzok. Miami would tie the game again as Strzok found tight end Bruce Hardy on a 50-yard touchdown pass to tie the game once again at 31. This was something I had never seen before. Two teams in a real shootout. This was so much fun and so exciting, and I was thinking in my 8-year-old mind, this is the greatest thing I had ever seen. The Dolphins would get the ball back on on a Fouts interception as the third quarter ended. And on the first play of the final period, instead of going through the air, the Dolphins changed things up and went on the ground. Tony Nathan broke several tackles and scored on a 12-yard run to give Miami the lead that most people that watched the game didn't think was possible. Now, Nathan was the unsung hero in this game as he scored on a lateral and on a run and finished with just 48 yards rushing, but he racked up 114 yards receiving and made several clutch plays throughout the entire game. I can remember when Nathan scored, and my dad, who was a longtime Raiders fan, and still is, by the way, he said, I knew it. With Shula Coach, you can't count them out. The Dolphins are going to end up winning this game. I don't know what happened, but at that moment, I wanted the Chargers to win so badly just to prove my dad wrong. And for the most part, and for most of that fourth quarter, I was really concerned. That was the moment I truly became a Chargers fan. In the fourth quarter, the Dolphins went conservative, running the ball, getting themselves in the field goal position to give them a 10-point lead, and for all intents and purposes, clinched their first uh, playoff berth in the AFC Championship game. On a simple run play late in the fourth, Dolphins fullback Andre Franklin fumbled. And Chargers defensive back Pete Shaw recovered to give the Chargers one last shot in regulation. Fouts and Air Coriel went on the attack through the air. And with less than a minute to play, Fouts would scramble to his right and loft the ball towards the end zone as he seen Winslow beginning to break away from the defender covering him. 
Fouts had overthrown his intended receiver, yet out of nowhere was rookie James Brooks breaking on the ball and making the catch in the back corner of the end zone to tie the game with 59 seconds remaining. With the Bernerska extra point, the game was now tied at 38, yet the Dolphins were not quite done. After the Chargers decided to squib kick and after a long shot completion of Tony Nathan, the Dolphins were in position for a game-winning field goal by their Pro Bowl kicker, Von Schaumann. Yet Winslow came through this time as he did throughout the afternoon with catch after catch and doing it after being helped off the after helped off the field after almost every single play due to a pinched nerve and dehydration. He came through in the clutch once again, but this time as part of the emergency do or die team with a blocked field goal, with a game saving blocked field goal to send the game into overtime. Now, this game was a Hall of Fame performance for Winslow as he finished with 13 catches with 166 yards and a touchdown along with, a, along with that clutch block field goal. As both teams trudged into the extra period, both teams had to contend with the heat and humidity of South Florida, which was unusual being the second day of January. The Chargers would get the ball first to start overtime and once again, the arm of Fouts drove the Chargers down the field. As a growing Chargers fan, I was sitting on the edge of my seat because this was the first postseason overtime game I had ever witnessed. San Diego drove into Dolphin territory and setting up a game-winning field goal. However, Bernerska, one of the most accurate kickers in the NFL, uncharacteristically missed right, giving the ball back to the Dolphins and their hot quarterback, Don Strzok. Strzok wasted no time bringing the Dolphins back down the field and into field goal position where, again, Strzok put them in position for the game winner. Strzok was finished with 403 yards passing and four touchdowns off the bench for the Dolphins. Von Schaumann would have a chance to redeem himself for the field goal that was blocked at the end of regulation. His attempt would redeem him. His attempt would be blocked once again. But this time, not by Kellen Winslow, but by Leroy Jones, a defensive lineman. And the game continued. As a young fan, this was a type of drama that couldn't be written. This was better than any move or anything I could have imagined. And it was happening in real time. The Chargers once again got the ball back as Fowles would complete three clutch passes on the drive. One to Winslow, who had to be helped off the field again. Another to Chandler, who had to be helped off the field. And finally, ageless wonder, Charlie Joyner, who had the wind knocked out of him when he was tackled near the, near the uh, sideline. The Chargers were gaining yards, yet losing players due to the heat and humidity and the physical nature of the game. Finally, late in the first overtime, Bernerska made up for his miss and ended one of the greatest postseason games in NFL history with a 29-yard field goal to send the Chargers back to the AFC Championship game. The Chargers had not only won the game, but they also gained a new fan in South Louisiana. This team was not only good, but it was exciting and so much fun to watch. It was almost like watching a movie play out right in front of you but it was actually real yet the story didn't have a happy ending unfortunately the following sunday the Chargers went from tropical hot house to an arctic windstorm as the, they played the cincinnati Bengals in the afc championship game known forever as the freezer bowl the Chargers couldn't contend with a fired up Bengals team and the wind chill that hovered around 59 degrees below zero 
The Chargers came up short that afternoon, yet I was so impressed with that team and the lightning bolts on their helmet that my love for them has never wavered. 40 years ago was not only a game that would live forever in NFL lore, but would live on in my mind of a game that converted me into a fan of the Chargers and a fan of the NFL in general. Now, coming up after this quick timeout would be this week's top five, and later in the broadcast, my tribute to a man who's almost like a member of the family as I grew up watching football, the late, great John Madden. Stay tuned. Here at the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, I'm Dana Augusta, the podcast where we explore the best names, best moments, and best memories in the history of sports. And before we get on with the rest of the show, just a reminder out there of our sponsor, which is newspapers.com. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a serious sports fan, and if you're into sports history, you have to check out newspapers.com. At newspapers.com, you can get access to over 640 million pages worth of news from the United States, from Canada, England, and various other places. Get a one-week subscription to newspapers.com by visiting sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. And with a paid subscription, you'll also be helping to support the production of this and other Sports History Network shows. That's sportshistorynetwork.com slash newspapers. Also, Check out our Twitter feed at HistoricallySP2 for your daily dose of sports history. And also, you could drop us a line or two at our email address, which is historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And finally, don't forget to hit that subscribe button wherever you hear this podcast so you can get new episodes whenever they come out. At this point in the show is our top five, and usually we talk about the five moments in sports history from the week that was. And we're going to be illustrating the events that took place between January 2nd and January 8th in various years. And to start things off, we're going to start it off right now with number five. The Chargers crushed the Patriots in the AFL championship game. On January 5, 1964, the San Diego Chargers hosted the Boston Patriots in the AFL Championship game at Balboa Stadium in San Diego. The game was supposed to be a matchup between the Chargers' potent offense led by former NFL and CFL quarterback Tobin Rote and a young wide receiver named Lance Allworth and a defense captained by defensive end Larry Eisenhower and linebacker Nick Bonaconti. Yet the game was remembered by a little-known Chargers fullback named Keith Lincoln, who had one of the greatest performances in a championship game slash Super Bowl. Lincoln tallied over... 250 all-purpose yards rushing and receiving as the Chargers crushed the Patriots 51-10 to claim their first and only AFL championship, avenging two previous losses in the AFL championship game. Number 4. The Chiefs beat arch-rival Raiders in the final AFL game. 
On January 4, 1970, the Kansas City Chiefs and the Oakland Raiders met at the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum for the final American Football League championship game, marking the final championship. The league had lasted 10 years and had profoundly changed the game of football. Its merger, its merger with the more established NFL would take effect the very next season as both teams would be placed in the brand new American Football Conference Western Division. Yet this game between these two bitter rivals would determine who would take on the Minnesota Vikings in Super Bowl IV, the first one ever taking place in New Orleans. The Chiefs, behind the passing of Lynn Dawson and the running of Robert Tank Holmes, powered Kansas City past the Raiders 17-7 and punching their ticket to New Orleans for the fourth Super Bowl, eventually winning Super Bowl IV by beating the Vikings 23-7. Number 3. Eric Dickerson runs wild through the Cowboys. On January 4, 1986, the Los Angeles Rams were the NFC divisional was in the NFC divisional round once again, taking on their postseason nemesis once again, the Dallas Cowboys. This time in Anaheim, with the birth of the in the NFC Championship on the line, running back Eric Dickerson became the focal point of the games as of this game as he racked up an NFL record. 248 yards rushing on 34 carries as the Rams shut out the Cowboys 20 to nothing. Dickerson scored a pair of touchdowns with, a run, with runs of 55 yards in the third quarter and a 40-yard touchdown run in the fourth. The Rams would advance to the NFC Championship game thanks to the shutout where they would take on the Chicago Bears at Soldier Field the following week. Number 2. The Negro National League begins operation. On January 4, 1920, a former pitcher named Andrew Rube Foster began a new baseball league for black players named the Negro National League because organized professional baseball was segregated. The league lasted into the 1950s and met its demise when Major League Baseball began to integrate. Yet for years of its existence, the league featured some of the greatest players and greatest teams in baseball history. In the league, you had the likes of Satchel Page, Josh Gibson, James Cool Papa Bell, along with Oscar Charleston and, Ch and James Buck O'Neill. The teams that were part of this league had become part of baseball lore, such as the Kansas City Monarchs, Detroit Stars, Homestead Grays, Birmingham Black Barons, and Rube Foster's team, the Chicago American Giants, and many, many, many others were some of the best teams ever assembled in baseball. And all of this came about in a YMCA in Kansas City, Missouri, where presently the Negro League Hall of Fame is located. And the number one event that took place in sports history between the dates of January 2nd and January 8th, Nancy Kerrigan attacked by Tanya Harding's bodyguard. On January 6, 1994, a scandal that rocked the world of figure skating took place in Detroit where Nancy Kerrigan was attacked by Shane Stant and as she finished practicing for the U.S. Figure Skating Championships in Cobo Arena. The attack was planned by Jeff Galuli, the ex-husband of fellow American figure skater Tanya Harding and his co-conspirator Sean, Sean Eckhart. They hired Stant and his uncle Derek Smith to carry out the attack. Galuli and Eckhart both claimed that Harding was involved in the attack and had knowledge of it beforehand. Harding initially denied all knowledge of the attack but soon accepted a plea agreement admitting 
to help cover up the attack after the fact. Later, both a grand jury and disciplinary panel from the United States Figure Skating Association would find further evidence of her involvement during the planning and execution phases. Now, the attack was intended to prevent Kerrigan from taking part of the ongoing 1994 United States Figure Skating Championships and the forthcoming Winter Olympics in Lillehammer, Norway. Thus increasing the prospects of Harding in both figure skating events, Kerrigan could not compete in the United U.S. Figure Skating Championship, but recovered in time to complete in the, compete in the Winter Olympics. Both women competed in the Olympics and, and Harding was later banned for life from skate, figure skating events. And that concludes this episode's top five events from the week from January 2nd to January 8th throughout, the, throughout history. And coming up is our shout out. And this week we're going to send a shout out to a giant in football history who recently passed away who had a profound impact on the game through three generations in three different unique ways. Stay tuned. with our final segment of the show which is what we call our shout out and this episode shout out goes to the late great John Madden now over the last week or so there's been several remembrances and nostalgic moments that myriads of people have given since the announcement of his death now John Madden has had an impact on the game of football through three totally different ways that have impacted three generations of fans as I had mentioned before, my dad is a big Raiders fan, and his admiration for the Silver Black began right around the time Madden became head coach in 1968. And for the next 10 seasons, Madden would win 100 games and have a winning percentage higher than any coach with as many wins, higher than, higher than Shula, higher than Hallis, even higher than Lombardi. And after he retired after the 1978 season, like most former athletes and coaches, he went into the broadcast booth. This occurred right around the time I started watching football. And I remember his first Super Bowl broadcast, which was Super Bowl 16 between the Niners and the Bengals in Pontiac, Michigan. I was in the third grade at the time, and for the next 30-plus years, he went, on, he went from being a former coach who turned announcer to almost a member of the family. It was always lighthearted and fun, but at the same time, if you were not careful, you actually may have learned something or some intrinsic element of the game. Now, right around the time I was finishing high school, Madden's, John Madden's football video game came out, and it was an immediate success. And through the years, me and a lot of my friends would spend countless hours playing Madden and went as far as to have dorm-wide gaming tournaments while living on the campus of Southern University. And still, we learned a lot from the announcer and former Raiders coach through the playing of his game. 
My son, who recently turned 17 years old, only knows the Madden, only knows Madden through the video game. But there's a lot, much, much, much more to the man who introduced Turducken to the American lexicon. Explaining to my son how much of an influence he had on not one, but three different generations of football fans cannot be overstated. So I would like to send one last boom and one last whack to one of the true ambassadors of football whose influence will continue to live on each day and and within each and every football fan. So that does it for the show. And thank you guys for listening. And don't forget to subscribe wherever and whenever you listen to this podcast. And please feel free to drop us a line here at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com or check out our Twitter page at historicallysp2. Thank you guys for listening. See you next time. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.